Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Good morning, and welcome to Bergen Park Church. You know, if you are new to us today, I want to encourage you to stop by the Connect Center on your way out. We'd like to get to know you and, and meet you. I also want to reiterate a couple of those announcements that were mentioned this morning. Um, we're trying to develop this the ministry of uh, table connections. It's a great way to meet new people in the church, whether you've been here forever or whether you're new to the church. Um, I'd encourage you to sign up at the Connect Center for table connections. It's a very easy way to meet others in our prayer. Our hope is that out of that, uh, maybe some, some small groups uh, and fellowship would, would form. I also want to mention that um, as we come to the end of the fiscal year, we're going to be voting on elders again in a few months. It's still a couple months away, but I want to encourage you, if you feel the call to eldership or if you know someone that meets the qualifications for biblical eldership, I would love to speak to you about that. I'm hoping to put together a a group of of guys that will study uh, biblical eldership. We'll walk through that together in preparation uh, for that. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, picking up where we left off last week. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And one of the main, major themes you're going to notice or observe in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is this idea of being integrated into the people of God. So the language that Paul uses in these verses is that of being estranged from God at one point in your life. You were foreigners, you were alienated, You were separated from God, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, those who were once foreigners have been brought into his people. They've been integrated into God's people. Now, some of you uh, may have some experience with, with immigration and naturalization. I know there are a few people that attend here that have come to the United States from other countries, and you've walked through that process of, uh, of integration into the, in, into the United States. Others may be natural-born Americans who have uh, had experiences in other countries going through a visa process. Um, I walked through that, that process myself when, when Amy and I moved to France. We had to apply for a visa. Every year we had to renew our visa until we'd been there. About five or six years we were able to apply for kind of their equivalent of a green card and, and start that process. But every January, we would have to go down to the prefecture in Lyon and stand out in the rain and the cold at four o'clock in the morning and wait for four hours in line until eight o'clock when they would open this big gate and let you into a courtyard. And if you were one of the lucky people, one of the first, I think it was about 300 people they would let in, if you were one of those, uh, you would get to stand in a second line that would divide into two lines and then come back together into one line again for no apparent reason, because that's just the way things work over there. But there were a couple of times where we'd stand in that line at four in the morning and the gate would be shut right in front of us. We'd have to come back the next day and do the whole thing over again. So you'd go into this other line and, I mean, the the wait was long. Um, We're talking maybe seven or eight hours waiting in lines. There wasn't much to do. So you'd bring a book or your smartphone and try to distract yourself. Sometimes a fight would break out, which was fun. That way you had some entertainment. Somebody would start fighting, the police would show up and make an arrest, and that would help the time pass a little bit. But finally, if you were lucky enough to get through those first two lines, you could get a ticket 
with a number on it, and that meant that you could then go into a waiting room that was built for about 100 people, but 300 people would be crammed in there, and you'd wait for your number to come up, and you'd go up to the guichet with your documents, um, the 12 documents that they asked you specifically to bring, and you followed the rules, and you brought the 12 documents they asked for, and then you would speak to an ill-tempered person behind a desk who would ask for four or five more documents on top of the 12 that you brought because they decided that you needed to bring some extra paperwork. So then you would come back a third time, um, wait in the line, go through the whole process, now with more documents, and by that time you've learned, too, to bring your entire filing cabinet with you just in case uh, they would ask for another uh, bit of paperwork. This time, of course, you had a, a notarized copy of your brother's, uncle's, cousin's, nephew's, best friend's, middle name's, former roommate, just to prove that you were who you said you were and go through all of that. So at this point, um, you'd turn in your paperwork and then they would ask you a few questions to which you had to respond in perfect French and explain who you were, what you were doing in the country, all of this stuff. See, they don't have, you know, press one for English, press two for Spanish, press three for an interpreter. You speak perfect French or you get out. They don't, they don't care. So you go through all of that, and then if everything goes well, they give you a piece of paper promising that your visa will arrive in four weeks. Ten months later, you get a, a phone call that your visa has arrived, so you get to go down, stand in a line again all day to pick up the visa. And then, of course, four weeks later, you're back again for next year to go through the process. Immigration and naturalization is not always an easy thing. So as I was saying, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, we learn something of this immigration process. This is the language Paul uses, that of naturalization into the people of God. And what we read is that we were once foreigners, those of us who were outside of God's people, outside of the nation of Israel. If you were a Gentile, I think that applies to most of us, the Greeks, the Gentiles, the barbarians. If you were outside of that people, you were strangers, separated from God, separated from his people. But we read, praise be to God, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, those who were once far away have been brought near. So let's go ahead and take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. Alienated, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near." For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in your presence this morning, um, to be encouraged by the, the missions update we heard, the work you're doing in this world, to be encouraged through the singing of songs and worship, to be encouraged through the reading of your word. Lord, we ask as the Apostle Paul himself prayed for the Ephesian church that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts this morning. Help us to draw near to you through the study of your word. Lord, I pray that for each person here this morning through this study, that each person would fall more in love with Jesus, that we would be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a couple of um, remarks on the context. If you were here the last couple of weeks, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And those verses, one of the themes you would have seen there is this idea that you were once dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient, and of course also the, the ways of the flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We were dead in transgressions and sins, but by the grace of God through faith we have been brought to life, made alive in Christ. So there was this contrast we saw in the passage between death and life. And now here, Paul kind of follows up on that theme, but instead of death and life, what he's talking about here is that you were once estranged. You were foreigners, but now you have been naturalized. You've been brought into the family of God. So again, we see this, this contrast. And I think the passage really is kind of filling out what we saw in chapter 1, verse 5, where it says that in love, the Father predestined you for adoption as sons. This is what Paul is, is now filling out for us, this idea of being brought into the people of God, brought into the family of God by grace. So there are a few things I'd like to uh, unpack in this passage this morning. And the first thing we see in the text is that we have been accepted by the Father. We're just saying those words, you're a good Father, that's who you are. We have been accepted by the Father through the blood of Jesus. And to appreciate this, I think we have to understand that in the past, God had made a covenant promise to Abraham and to his descendants that they would be blessed. If you go back to Genesis chapter 15 or Genesis 17, you see how God has made this covenant with Abraham and blessed Abraham and told Abraham that through him, through his offspring, the nations also would be blessed. And the sign of that covenant relationship was the sign of circumcision. Okay, that's what we have referenced here in verse 11. If you go back to verse 11 in Ephesians 2, the bloody sign of circumcision. And this was a physical mark that God had shown his grace to those that he had prepared for inclusion in his redemptive plan. It was the sign of his covenant worn in the flesh. 
You see, the redemptive history in Scripture tells of God's grace in choosing Abraham, God's grace in giving Abraham this covenant sign of the promise, God's grace in giving his people the law revealed through Moses so that they would know how to worship him. We read of God's grace in giving his people King David and promising to David that his descendant would sit on the throne. So God's redemptive work, we see it throughout the Old Testament, Genesis all the way to the end, all the way through the New Testament, the story that's constantly being unraveled. We're seeing more and more of God's grace being revealed to his people. So again, Paul is reminding his readers that the covenant sign was in some ways their membership card. It was their VIP pass, their backstage pass. It meant that they were part of the club those who bore that, that sign in, in the flesh, the male offspring of Israel on the eighth day receiving that sign. Now, you've probably been at some point in your life part of a club, and you know that feeling of being accepted into the club, being part of that, that organization, part of that group. But if you've been rejected, if you're not part of that club, you probably also know that feeling of, of rejection, right? Not being included Remember the first time you tried walking into Costco without a membership card, right? And you were immediately set upon by a host of Costco henchmen, right? And you were sent over to, the, over to the side, over to the counter. If you want to come in here, you have to have that membership card. And you'd go through the process and you'd fill out the paperwork and you'd get your photo taken and they'd make up a card for you. And as soon as you had that membership card, you could proudly strut through the doors of Costco without fear of being cast out into the darkness <laughs> where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know what I'm talking about, right? Costco. So with your Costco membership, you belong to the elite in a way, right? Innumerable discounts and bulk items are at, at your fingertips with that Costco card. It's like, a, it's like VIP status, right? It's like having a backstage pass to that concert. It's, it's like being invited to sit in, in the corporate booth at Mile High Stadium, not with the rest of the people spilling beer on you, but you have that, the comfort of that, that booth. It's that kind of idea, and that's what we see happening here. You see, the, the blood of, of Christ at the cross actually fulfilled that bloody sign of circumcision. Christ shed his blood for us, and so through Jesus, the Father accepts us. We're brought in. Through Jesus, we now have that kind of status, right? The VIP status, backstage past, Christ has brought us near to the Father. And this takes us to the second point, because here at the beginning of the passage, you see how the Father accepts us, but it is through Jesus Christ that we are brought into his people. See, the cross of Christ has destroyed the dividing wall. Notice that language in verse 14. The dividing wall of hostility that existed between God and the people, between people and other people. And what comes to my mind is that, that barrier that existed in, in the temple, right? The, the, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. That's one of the metaphors we see in, in Scripture. Now understand that the, the, the veil in the temple was not some thin diaphanous sheet. This was a thickly woven cloth. 
And in fact, in Exodus chapter 26, verses 31 through 35, uh, the text describes this veil, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, finely twisted linen, hung on a, a gilded wooden pole between the holy place and the most holy place, the holy of holies. We, we read that only once a year could a priest pass into the most holy place on Yom Kippur, the, the day of atonement to offer sacrifice provision for the sin of the people. And that was the day the Lord would descend into that cloud from the burning incense on the altar and the priest would stand face to face with God. That was the only time this would happen. There was a dividing wall between God and the people. The holiness of God and the unholiness of man. But then we read in Matthew 27, verse 51, it tells of the moment of Jesus' death and how that, that, that temple curtain was torn in two. The dividing wall was torn asunder through the work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus made a new and living way into the sanctuary of God by his shed blood on the cross. Jesus made peace between a holy God and unholy people by cleansing them of their unholiness. And through this peace, he made peace between all who profess faith in Jesus Christ. See, there was not a physical wall around the nation of Israel, but there might as well have been, right? In the Old Testament, there was the people of God and there was everyone else. Now, Gentiles could come across the border. They could go into a part of the temple and worship, but they were still excluded. They were separated. They were unclean. They could not be touched. There could not be fellowship between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. That's just the way it was. But God has restored that in Christ. Now, I used to lead a, a young adults Bible study for a number of years. Uh, this is made up of international students, people from all over the world, all continents, uh, apart from Antarctica, of course. But these people came from all over the place, spoke different languages, had different customs, different culture, different food, different music, um, very little in common, to tell you the truth. There were topics we didn't talk about. You, you didn't touch politics in this group. You had so much diversity. There were times we would have 15 different uh, countries represented in the room. Every Friday night we would meet, Amy would make a big meal, we'd sit around the table, eat together, and study the Bible. And there were times you had a Chinese and a Taiwanese person in the room together. And you can imagine some of the political uh, tension there, or a Ukrainian and a Russian, or these kinds of things. It was a diverse group. I learned that a lot of stereotypes are true. I learned that a lot of things, I need to, I need to adjust my, my assumptions as well. You, you, it's surprising at times what you learn about people. We had very little in common in many ways, but one thing we had in common was a love for Jesus Christ. A love for Jesus Christ and a commitment to the Word of God. A commitment to love our brother and sister in Christ. And that helped diffuse a lot of the tension that could uh, exist in that room. You see, the idea here is that Christ in his mercy has and will continue to reconcile people. When we have become reconciled with the Father, that is kind of the baseline, that's the foundation on which reconciliation takes place in the church. 
So we see here that the final piece in this text shows us that, that the Jew and the Gentile, the, the Jew and the non-Jew, have been brought together, built up in the Spirit of God who indwells them. See, the church makes up a common structure. That's the language used here in the text, built up in Christ on this foundation of Christ, the cornerstone. And the foundation, the cornerstone of Christ is critical in understanding the nature of unity in the church. And I need to make several ancillary remarks on on the nature of unity here in the text because I think we tend to be very careless in how we treat unity in the New Testament. This is something we're going to talk about a little bit today, and we're going to come back to this in a few weeks when we examine uh, Ephesians chapter 4. But the theology, we need to understand the theology of Ephesians does not tell us to pursue unity for the sake of unity. I don't even think it's possible to pursue unity for the sake of unity. Uh, If you want unity in the church, what Paul's saying is don't go out and try to get some unity. He says "Your, your efforts here will fail. If you want unity in the church, you need more Jesus. Okay. The idea is that union with Christ is the basis on which unity in the church is made possible. See, the, the church doesn't attain unity by trying harder to be unified. The church attains unity by drawing near to God who has reconciled the church to himself through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's our starting point. We've talked about this already as we've worked through the book of Ephesians. We build the Christian life on a theological foundation rooted in who God is and what Christ has done. If you bypass that important piece, you're going to fail. That's just the way it works. See, the doctrine of union with Christ in chapter 2 allows us to then go and interpret the doctrine of unity of believers in chapter 4. Okay, so remember that in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul is laying out this theological foundation centered on the nature of the triune God and the redemptive work of Christ. Okay, we've got a theological foundation, chapters 1 through 3, then you go to chapters 4 through 6, and that's where the practical pieces come in. Okay, so that's just the structure of Ephesians. Okay, doxa, or belief, for the purpose of praxis, uh, action. Okay, those two things have to be connected. The action flows from what we believe about God. So, um, just a couple of of examples of this in the book of Ephesians. See, if we correctly understand our radical corruption, as as iterated in chapter 2, this idea of being dead in our transgressions and sins, if we understand the nature of our radical corruption and God's restorative grace in chapter 2, then we can better live out the commands we see in chapter 4 to put off the old self, to be made new in the attitude of our minds, to put on the new self, that kind of stuff. Uh, That you were once walking in darkness, but now you are children of light in chapter 5. All of that makes sense in context to what Christ has done in chapter 2. If we want to correctly understand the exaltation and and authority of of the resurrected Christ in chapter 1, if we start there, then that will help us situate what we see in chapter 6 when we talk about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare does not make sense unless we have an exalted Christ who has complete authority and dominion over all powers in this world, both both physical and, and spiritual. See, it all has to fit together. If we correctly understand the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ in laying down his life for us 
as iterated in chapters one through three, then we start to understand what Paul's talking about in chapter five when he says, husbands love your wives, wives submit your husbands, fathers care for your children, children respect your parents, that kind of stuff. It makes sense in context to what Christ has done. And again, we come here to to this idea of unity. It's just very important to understand because when we get to chapter four, it talks, about, it, it talks about this. Paul says, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. He goes on to say there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Okay? Unity. You see this in chapter 4. How does this make sense? Keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. How do you maintain or keep something that you don't already have in the first place? Where does this come from? Well, it comes from union with Christ. That's the foundation. So unity as believers is just something you have when you are in union with Christ through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. So when Paul tells the church, keep that unity in chapter 4, this is because we already have it, right? God has given that to us through our relationship with him. So ignoring, ignoring our differences, trying to gather up in a big circle and sing kumbaya and that kind of stuff is not going to unify the church, See, the local church has a better chance of success when we share a common commitment to key doctrinal concepts in Scripture, shared vision, shared missional emphases, shared love for Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. You've got to start there. I want you to picture for a moment a pyramid, okay, with, with God at the very top and Christians at the corners at the bottom, Okay, if you want to bring those Christians together, you, you can't do it on that horizontal base. Okay, but imagine as you move up that pyramid, as you get closer to that, that apex or that, that vertex, whatever, the top of the pyramid, naturally you're going to be drawn together, right? The closer you get to God, the closer you get to one another. So as we think about how to repair conflicts in the church Local church, broader church, whatever, disagreements among believers in the church, we begin by drawing near to God, getting to know God better through the word, through praying his word, through singing his word. We begin with this naturalization process into the family of God. We draw near to him, he draws near to us, right? We draw near to him, our brothers and sisters in Christ draw near to him, and we are naturally drawn together. Now, I'm not saying that this solves all the problems immediately, everything goes away suddenly. Remember that this is a process too. Sanctification is a, is a process. But this is the idea we need to start with God, with who he is. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 can evoke some response, uh, maybe some strong reaction to this idea of union with Christ. And one type of response that I see often is, is driven by this idea of resisting integration into Christ, integration into his people. And I've heard this statement said, maybe um, you've made the statement yourself, maybe you've heard people say these kinds of things, but we hear sometimes people say, I'm a Christian but I don't need the church. I'm a Christian, 
but I don't like other Christians. They're rude and they're bigoted and they're hypocrites and I don't need that. I can do this on my own. I'm a Christian, but I don't need some holier-than-thou pastor telling me what to do. I can live the Christian life on my own. Here's the thing. See, if you are truly united to Christ, then you belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. Furthermore, you belong to Christ's body by virtue of belonging to Christ. See, the local church is not perfect, but the local church belongs to Christ, and he loves it. Jesus loves his church. He loves it more than any pastor will ever love it. He loves it more than any of you will love it. He loves his church so much he died for it. Remember that the church is made up of people who are once dead. Okay, remember Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Okay, you are surrounded by former zombies. Okay, remember that. People who are still trying to work it out, still coming to life. Okay, well, we're going to get it wrong sometimes, but don't give up on the church. Jesus loves his church. Don't give up on the church. And don't think you can live a healthy spiritual life in Christ apart from the body of Christ. The, the, The church is a grace of God that he has given us. Another reaction to Paul's teaching is seen oftentimes in the, in the worry that maybe God isn't near. Maybe God doesn't want me to be part of his people, part of his nation, part of his community. We might think God reconciles other people, but surely he wouldn't reconcile me. Now, if that's where you're at, I want to remind you that God has come to you in Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God, God with us. Okay? Our loving Heavenly Father has gone out and rounded up the unworthy and brought them into the feast. Okay? That is the language of Scripture. God loves you and wants to bring you in and adopt you. You see, to enter God's country, to enter God's people, you don't need a visa. Okay? Thank God for that. You don't have to stand in line at 4 o'clock in the morning, in the rain, in the cold, You don't have to prove your ancestry, your heritage. You don't have to bring papers with you that are notarized by 20 different things. You don't need proof of residence. You don't need a photo ID. You don't need that stuff. You are in because of who Christ is and what he has done. Okay? See, his cross is your reconciliation with the Father. His cross is your restoration from estrangement, healing from estrangement. So can I just encourage you that no matter who you are, immigration and naturalization into the people of God is possible by the blood of Jesus Christ, by faith. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, I pray that as we go from here, each one of us would learn to delight in that, to delight in who you are, to delight in this idea of being made one again, uh, brought into union with Christ, reconciled with others. Lord, it's a beautiful doctrine. Help us, Lord, to enjoy that, that peace that you have created. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.